Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations, where we tap into university resources to examine important issues. I'm Rob Palazzolo. This half hour, we're talking with Charles Camozzi, who's a prominent bioethicist and theology professor at Fordham. But first, Fordham Conversations producer Megan Connor walked around Times Square to find out what tourists and everyday New Yorkers think about physician-assisted suicide. Can you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Sharon Gale. I'm actually in favor of it. I think that it's an individual decision of the right to die when one wants to and under the proper circumstances is an individual decision that should be made between a doctor and a patient. And why do you feel this way? Because I've suffered from mental illness and I know what the feeling is like to want to commit suicide. I'm also undergoing an illness. Would you feel comfortable sharing that illness? I have breast cancer and um, this is the third time I've had it. So I'm now on chemotherapy for the rest of my life. It's not going to end positively. So was this ever an option that you would consider? Should it be legal? I think I should have the right to consider that option. And do you think there's a particular reason why it's not legal right now? I think America and its quest for freedom has always been filled with busybodies who are anxious to control other people's uh, actions. I think it's the flip side of democracy. Uh, hi, I'm Jun Lin. I'm from China and I'm a tourist here in New York. And can you tell me your opinion on physician-assisted suicide? I think it's the right thing to do because every individual is different. They have their own way of thinking like and dealing with things just like everyone has the right to live i think everyone has a right to you know end their life if they want to i'm rob palazzolo and now my interview with dr charles camozzi in your view you know as a bioethicist and a theology professor here at fordham what's the single biggest bioethical issue that we face uh, when it comes to like end-of-life care in that kind of ethical realm um I think it has to do with how we're going to protect the most vulnerable in our culture. So, uh, you know, we all can think of the sympathetic cases where someone has end-stage cancer or uh, some other dramatic example like that. And we're getting very good at um, palliative care for those patients. Not perfect, but so there are those few cases. But as we've seen in countries like the Netherlands, for instance, once you start allowing um, direct killing of patients at the end of life, it's hard to stop. So the Netherlands has, for instance, offered, or at least they're debating, the, the uh, possibility of offering euthanasia for people who are quote-unquote tired of life. And, you know, when you have a culture that's defined by autonomy, for instance, as Western cultures mostly are, it's hard to argue with them. I mean, who are we to judge what's a good reason to kill yourself or a bad reason to kill yourself? But I I, I want to, as a theologian especially, I want to say, let's take a harder look at why people would be tired of life. What, what pushes people to the margins of their culture such that they're not valued and challenge those things? So it sounds to me a little bit like when it comes to uh, voluntary euthanasia, as you put it, and uh, physician-assisted suicide, you're making sort of a variation of the slippery slope argument. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are non-slippery slope arguments to make. You know, we can get into those if you like. But um, I think the most powerful one, the one that I've at least had the most success in reaching people with is the slippery slope one. Uh, most obviously because you can just see it happening. Uh, uh, originally, the Netherlands started with, um, you know, hopeless and unbearable suffering. Um, just recently, they uh, offered and, and fulfilled the request of euthanasia to a woman who is going blind, right? Um, so, uh, and other countries like Belgium is offering now euthanasia to children. It's not clear how much of an autonomous decision children can make. Uh, we try to say we locate the autonomous decision of children and their parents, but that's largely a myth. The parents are quite rightly doing what they think is in their best child's interest, but it's certainly not the autonomy of the child that's being respected. So time and time again, we can point to instances where while we, th when we think of as a sympathetic case, uh, it might work as a matter of public policy. It's very hard to keep it just at that sympathetic level. You mentioned arguments against uh, voluntary euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. Besides the slippery slope, slope argument, uh, what would those be? Well, um, I think it would proceed from the principle that we just have lives that don't belong to us. And I know that seems maybe, in a, again, autonomy-centered society, a strange claim that our lives don't belong to us. I, as a theologian, I have good theological reasons for believing that, but um, I think all of us, regardless of your theological point of view, have a sense that our lives just aren't ours to do with as we please. So uh, if I want to live my life in a way that's going to harm members of the community, every, almost everyone would say, well, your life is kind of yours, but it's not yours if it's harming other people to do with it. You have to take into consideration, for instance, how your decisions affect other people. And I think it's not too difficult for people to understand that a decision to kill yourself affects many, many other people. So um, at a very basic level, I would want to say our lives aren't the kinds of things that we own as individuals to autonomously do with whatever we want. There are other broader considerations there. I see. So it the autonomy kind of argument that's, like you said, so prevalent in our culture, maybe it ignores uh, all the kind of links people have to other people in their lives. Yeah, and that's one of the important critiques, I think, of American culture, isn't it? That we're too individualistic, that we're too self-centered, that we're too focused on individual autonomy, that we ought to be more concerned with community. And often, and quite rightly, those kind of critiques get made when it comes to our healthcare system or our social safety net or these other things. And I think that's exactly right. But uh, not often enough, it seems to me, are these arguments consistently made when it comes to other kinds of issues like uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide. Well, given that, like you were just saying, the United States is such a you know personal autonomy-centered culture, are you worried then that these kind of things are going to spread and are likely to become legal here, or more legal than they already are? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting and complicated question. I mean, I, I am worried um, about that, but also hopeful. Um, the uh, state of Massachusetts uh, in 2012 had assisted suicide on the ballot. I don't know if you remember this, but um, and it's traditionally thought of as you know a liberal issue. So people who are in favor of euthanasia are thought to be liberal, whatever that means. Uh, people who are against it are thought to be conservative, whatever that means. But the quote-unquote liberal state of Massachusetts rejected uh, assisted suicide in 2012 by a narrow margin. 
And I think that's interesting. So the more progressive uh, the state is, I wonder if they're not, more, the more concerned they are with community and questioning individual autonomy vis-a-vis in, uh, -vis the common good, I think you can make powerful arguments that say, well, the common good is actually a trump when it comes to individual autonomy. And so if you can show that there's a really strong community interest against having euthanasia, um, the more progressive uh, state or a community is, perhaps the more um, skeptical they'd be of euthanasia. And actually, uh, perhaps the more conservative an area is, the more it's focused on individual autonomy and choice and government staying out of my life and let me make my own de decisions. Um, so, uh, you know, are we becoming more progressive or becoming more uh, conservative? I don't know. I think those are unhelpful maybe labels that we just use as shorthand. But I do think, in general, we're becoming cognizant, especially when it comes to healthcare, of the priority of the community over the individual. Now, um, bring a little bit of uh, pop culture in here. Sure. We just got through about a thousand of these uh, ALS ice bucket videos uh, on Facebook. Right. Um, but you know, in the midst of all that, I think a lot of people forgot what a really, really awful disease that is. Right. Um, now. And in fact, that famous or infamous uh, 60 Minutes video of, uh, you know, an assisted suicide in progress was of an ALS patient. To play devil's advocate here, sure. somebody who was suffering as much as that man in that video was, is it fair for us to say, we won't let you take your life and we won't help you do it? Yeah, like I said, it becomes more sympathetic when we just look at an individual case, right? And we don't think about the broader public policy. So I agree. I mean, I have to say, it seems uh, like a sympathetic case. Uh, but two responses to that. One I already made, which is, even if it's sympathetic, we have to think about the community more broadly before we make it legal in a public policy. It's not just about the individual, it is also about the community. But second, um, I think it's worth pointing out that in four countries that make um, assisted suicide and euthanasia legal, they uh, give less attention to other solutions to these problems. So, um, for instance, back to the Netherlands, they've had assisted suicide and euthanasia legal for, for a couple of generations now. Um, they're lagging far behind when it comes to palliative care, pain care for their patients. It's probably not difficult to understand why that might be the case. They have this other thing that they can use as a solution. So. Um, I wonder if we have this sort of easy out where we say, well, um, you know, it's really bad that you're in this situation, so we're going to give you the chance to uh, kill yourself or have someone kill you. Um, we don't, it's, it's another kind of public policy argument, but I wonder if we don't become a little bit complacent when it comes to finding other um, solutions to these problems. Uh, one solution that's becoming more and more, or one possible solution that's becoming more and more pre uh, prevalent is that of terminal sedation, where you don't actually aim at the death of a patient, you just keep them essentially unconscious so that whatever pain they're in, uh, when conscious, they don't, they're not feeling, they're not suffering, but you don't actually aim at their death. You don't kill them. Um, and then eventually, if, you, if the diagnosis has been right, which is often not the case, but if the diagnosis has been right, they'll die naturally on their own anyway. And you keep and you keep them um, from feeling the suffering. So you know, when, w if we had had euthanasia be legal, 
would we have focused as much on trying to find solutions like terminal sedation or like better palliative care, better research for ALS? You know, I don't know. I do know that in the Netherlands, the more they focused on euthanasia, they, the less they focused on other options. I'm Rob Palazzolo on 90.7 WFUV, talking with Fordham professor and bioethicist Dr. Charles Camozzi. We're discussing the morality of the movement to allow physician-assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia. And we actually brought this up a little bit, uh, healthcare and healthcare reform, um, and maybe the changing idea of healthcare in the United States. Um, do you think that the changes that have been made, the healthcare reform bill, do you think it's going to be good for end-of-life care in the U.S.? That's a really complicated question. Um, I think it's good. I mean, there are a number of levels in which you can answer that question. I think it's good on sort of a really macro level where we say, you know, this may require uh, certain individuals to sacrifice more for the community, for the betterment of the community. Um, and therefore we say the priority of the autonomy of the individual to not pay higher taxes or to not have the Cadillac health care plan that they want um, is trumped by the goal of having every person, including the most vulnerable, protected uh, with health insurance. Um, and that translates into what we just talked about. Um, more broadly, I guess I am a little worried. Uh, you know, I'm not in favor of making quality of life judgments and saying, you know, that person is worth more than that person or that person is more burdensome than that person. Um, uh, I'm not in favor of that. And so I worry that at least with some of the language we've been using, um, some of the programs that have been touted uh, as part of the ACA, like uh, end of life counseling, I want to be I want to have a sense of like, okay, what does that mean, right? Uh, what values are at the heart of what we're telling people when we say end-of-life counseling, which has been part of the ACA? And I'm not sure that's been one of the weaknesses of the ACA, ACA I think. I think we don't know exactly what values, uh, you know, and that's, that's really problematic, especially because um, physicians are very privileged individuals. And when physicians um, make quality of life judgments about their patients, there have been studies done on this, they always, always, always rate their f patients' quality of life less than the patients themselves. And so I think we need to be very careful about involving people of privilege uh, in telling people, especially who are on, perhaps on the margins, um, things about options for end-of-life care because it can get very messy very quickly. You know, you mentioned the uh, end-of-life counseling thing, which uh, during the whole debate for healthcare was uh, labeled as, you know, death panel and that whole thing. And there were other terms, memorable ones thrown around, like uh, uh, one I remember particularly pulling the plug on grandma, you know. Um, no, obviously those were silly, but I think that reflects a concern some people had about uh, the rationing of care. Uh, especially end-of-life care. Um, is that going to happen, or if it already happens, is it going to happen differently under the health care reform? As implied in your question, I would just say it already happens. <laughs> and um, as a theologian, I think there are good reasons for thinking that we are never not going to be rationing care. We're all going to die someday. We have limited resources. We have to decide. We don't have enough resources to meet everyone's needs we have to decide how we're going to allocate scarce resources. It's just a fact of life. We have 
finite lives, finite resources, do the math. Um, that's different, however, I think, than aiming at someone's death, which is what we were talking about earlier, right? And saying, like, okay, it's time for you to die right now, or it's time for me to help you die right now. That's a different kind of question, right? Uh, you're asking a question um, to use sort of fancy moral theological language uh, that, in, that invokes the doctrine of double effect. So what, what you're saying is, or you're, what you're proposing is, could we ever engage in a rationing scenario where we uh, foresee that this will help some people and other people will be left without care and foresee that they may not survive, um, but we don't intend their death? Uh, Catholic teaching, traditional ethics, secular ethics, they all make a very large distinction between situations where you're aiming at death, aiming to kill, and where you engage in activities where you allocate scarce healthcare resources where you foresee that some people will die. Uh, private health insurance does this already, has been doing it for a very long time. Um, Medicaid and Medicare like private health insurance, in fact private health insurance use, uses Medicaid and Medicare reimbursement rates as a baseline for how much they're going to reimburse uh, for various things. So we're already doing it. I'm, but again, I just get back to what we talked about earlier. I'm just not sure on what basis we were, we were going to do it in the ACA. We got a bunch of unelected bureaucrats that are, in fact, on something. If, if we don't want to call it a death panel, call it a rationing board, right? Call it something that is deciding how the ACA is going to distribute resources. Um, I would like to know on what basis they're deciding that. Now, um, why is it, do you think, that this whole issue gets people so worked up? What, what is it about it that makes people, you know, feel the need to throw out terms like death panels and uh, pulling the plug on grandma? What is it that just gets that kind of energy and passion going? Well, on one level, it's certainly political, right? So, uh, you know, I think Sarah Palin was more right than a lot of people thought when she said death panels. She probably shouldn't have said death panels because that actually distracted from the point I, would, I think she wanted to make, which is we're, we're making hard decisions here. We better pay close attention to how we do that. But she said death panels because it was a politically expedient thing to do to try to defeat the ACA. And many other people got on board with that. So that's one thing. Some of it's just raw politics. But on the other hand, I think so many of these issues connect so deeply to things we care about so much, obviously, like our own lives, the lives of our relatives, um, how we treat the most vulnerable in our culture, how we organize a healthcare system. I mean, these are just fun. I mean, if you're not interested in these things, just wonder like, if you even have a pulse yourself, right? Uh, these are the kinds of things that people are arguing about at cocktail parties that when you get together on Thanksgiving, you argue about with your families, right? Because they're just at the, and this is what I love about theology, right? Theology gets to these fundamental ultimate issues that just matter so much to people. And um, that's why doing theological bioethics is so great because you get to really get and, and drill deep into them. Yeah, and I mean, what scares us more than our own death, right? Um, no, you, you, well, you just mentioned at the end there, um, what is it about, in your opinion, about theology that uh, helps you, you know, uh, take on these bioethical issues, gives you a different perspective uh, on them? Why come at it from that angle? Well, I think um, our secular plural culture has, maybe for some understandable reasons, tried to take questions of ultimate concern, theological questions, out of the conversation. 
in part because we have a plural culture then and people think radically differently about these questions and these values. Um, but then what, what ends up happening is we try to talk about these things without references to ultimate values. Like what is death? What is life? What does it mean to kill? Uh, what does it mean to allocate, allocate resources justly? And we try to have this sort of least common denominator conversation without talking about these big questions. And it's, in my opinion, a disaster. We, we, I mean, this is one reason why I think our culture is so polarized, is because we don't get down to these fundamental questions. And as a theologian, um, I'm obviously coming at it from a particular answer to these questions. But at least I want to say, please acknowledge the validity and indeed the importance of these questions, the essential importance of these questions. If we don't start with these questions of ultimate concern, we're never going to get anywhere when it comes to finding answers to these really, really huge issues. And, um, you know, secular bioethics, unfortunately, has become sort of the least common denominator discourse rather than, in my opinion, doing the really hard spade work of getting into these ultimate questions. Now, uh, let's just go into hypotheticals here. Let's say that uh, you and people who have a similar outlook as you uh, advocated for a certain law, bioethical law, and it got passed and became the law of the land. Um, now, if somebody said, wait a minute, you know, this is a theological perspective and it's now the law, that's not fair, or that's unconstitutional, or something like that, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I have to say I don't have a lot of sympathy. Um, uh, let's just look at history, right? So the most important leaders of the um, anti-slavery and civil rights movements were very theologically oriented people, like the Reverend Martin Luther King, right? Um, at, at every turn, uh, King would invoke scripture and uh, his Christianity in making arguments for his positions for civil rights. And eventually, I mean, as we all know, his influence was radically influential in creating civil rights law. I don't hear a lot of people saying, well, that's unconstitutional, right? He used his theological uh, positions to pack, pack, um, pass a law uh, in favor of civil rights. And there's good reason for that, because <laughs> lots of other people agreed with him on other, uh, for other reasons um, that were, didn't share his um, explicitly theological point of view. And I think something similar about end-of-life issues. So you don't have to be a theist. You don't have to be a Christian uh, to accept these kinds of positions. Um, and furthermore, uh, it's not clear why we would exclude certain kinds of arguments from entering the public sphere. I mean, it would be wrong to say, well, because it's Christian, therefore it should become a law. But if we're having a public plural debate, utilitarians, feminists, Christians, secular humanists, let's have them all be in this conversation. Let's all uh, sort of have it out and, um, and uh, a democratic process uh, flow from that. But it's not clear why we would say, well, we'll let the utilitarians and we'll let the feminists and we'll let the secular humanists be part of the discussion. But if you have this other tradition, say Islam or Buddhism or Christianity, then you can't be a part of the discussion because you have this different kind of um, uh, tradition of thought. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I just don't have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. So it's almost as if there's a difference between say, advocating a belief that might, you know, have some theological background to it and, say, wanting a theocracy is what you're saying. There's a big gulf between those two. 
I certainly, I certainly think so. I mean, I, we're a long, long way away from anything like a theocracy. If, if anything, we have radical skepticism, I think, of anything like that. Now, you, this is related. Um, you told me uh, when we were talking over the phone that you, sometimes you think that when it comes to these ethical issues that using just philosophy isn't enough. Um, can you explain a bit what you meant by that? Well, I mean, it depends on the kind of philosophy we're doing. I was a philosophy major as undergrad. I love philosophy. I think it's very important. Um, but if by philosophy we mean uh, reason alone, right? That's one way sometimes it's thought about. Just reason alone. We're all being reasonable here. Uh, then that's deeply problematic for reasons that I just suggested. So if you're a feminist or a utilitarian or a secular humanist, you're not using just reason alone, right? You, if you drill down to the very basics about what you believe, you eventually get to a point where you say, I just believe in the enfranchisement of, total enfranchisement of women and empowerment of women just because it's true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't give you a reasonable argument for that. I don't, I don't like give you premise conclusion. I just have it as an article of faith that that's true. That's what's driving me. That's what I'm about. For utilitarian, it's maximizing utility, right? Pleasure over pain, preferences over non-preferences, whatever it is. At a bottom, that's what I'm making my life about. If you ask me why, I don't give you an answer. I just say it just sort of grabs me by some sort of authority or intuition. I can't really tell you, but it's just there, and it just grabs me and pushes me in this direction. And, you know, uh, obviously, I'd say as a Christian, I'd say something like that too, right? I have this um, fundamental belief about the love of Jesus as it animates me, and I try to imitate it in my life and in my work. But I don't have um, any more of a, or any less of a faith uh, commitment than my secular colleagues do, it seems to me, when it comes right down to it. We all have first principles that animate us that we don't have rational arguments for. So if by philosophy we mean um, everyone's just sitting around being reasonable and we're not being religious, right, which is sometimes thought of as being not reasonable, then that's deeply problematic for the reasons I just said. But if, if, if you engage in a philosophical conversation where we acknowledge the faith-based and first principles, uh, which are our um, starting points, then I think it'd be very helpful. So even, you know, the most rational, cool-headed, uh, just logical, almost, you know, the person most like Spock or whatever, uh, even they, when you get right down to it, has a moment deep in their brain that's just a just because kind of article of faith is what you're saying. Right. I think anyone I can talk to, if they say, I have this position on euthanasia, or I have this position on healthcare, or I have this position on virtually any uh, really important issue of our day, I can walk them back in their position to something that is not just coolly rational, here's my deductive uh, reasoning that gets me there, et cetera, et cetera. It is a value that simply claims you. I mean, Spock himself, like if you say, like, um, it, why should you make, why should one make a decision about who should live and who should die based on logic or based on um, justice or based on utilitarianism? Uh, you might be a Star Trek fan if you gave that example. There's the famous scene where he says, the good of the many outweigh the good of the few, right? Classic utilitarian uh, reasoning. Um, we don't say that in every situation. In healthcare, we don't say, well, you know, old people are really expensive, and we could really use a lot of that money on younger people and create more utility in their lives. So I think we should have euthanasia after age 75, right? We might, we might be able to make a utilitarian argument for that and say the good of the many outweigh the good of the few, but we don't do that because we say 
justice. Now, why, why do we say justice? I don't think we can make a, like a deductive, sort of coolly reasoned, rational argument. I would argue it become, it, it's because we have a Christian um, patrimony that's, that talks about justice, especially for the most vulnerable. And we're, even though we're not a Christian country today, we have a lot of historical ties to that way of thinking. Um, that's a debatable point of view. Uh, but at any, anyway, regardless of where Spock or Martin Luther King or John Paul II come down, it's going to be some, in my view, some first principle that is based on faith rather than cool rationality. I think any day we can talk about Spock is a good day. Um, <laughs> all right, so just to sort of wrap this up here, yeah, yeah. Um, for you, why bioethics? Why did you get into this field in the first place? Well, as I hope this interview makes clear, it just gets into so many issues that are fundamentally matter to the very deepest parts of who we are. So we've been talking today about euthanasia and end-of-life issues. Uh, that's obvious for reasons we've already talked about. Those gets into the deepest parts of who we are. Um, abortion and stem cell research gets into the deepest parts of who we are at a different side of life, right? Um, genetic testing and genetic manipulation gets into powerful uh, questions about who we are. Are we the sum total of our genes? Is genetic manipulation of us at our most fundamental level? Do we have a more fundamental level than our genetic structure and code? Um, brain deaths, another classic example. When do, when do people die? Um, is it when your heart stops beating and you start stop breathing? Is it when huge parts of your brain stop functioning? Um, these are all um, just the questions that make us, that animate us at our most fundamental levels, it seems to me. And I'm just really lucky that I be, you know, get up every day and get to have a job where they pay me to, to write and teach and think about this stuff. All right, Charlie, thanks so much for joining me. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Rob Palazzolo.